Hi, I'm Heather Bruschetti at the Business Council of New York State. I'm the president and CEO, and now I am the host of this podcast called Connect, the Business Council podcast. The Connect podcast aims to bring you the most interesting interviews with business leaders and newsmakers from around the state. And now here's the host of Connect, Heather Bruschetti. Hello and welcome to yet another edition of the Connect Podcast. I am your host, Heather Bruschetti. Today's guest is Aaron Pasitti, Associate Professor of Economics at Siena College. Aaron teaches macroeconomics, political economy, labor markets, employment insecurity, inequality, and employment history. And he is currently in the process of developing a survey to measure job quality in the United States. Our discussion today is on the economy and the impact uh, of, the, of the coronavirus on the economy. Um, so as everyone knows, we're, uh, especially here in New York, but I think more so in the future in the rest of the country, businesses are really struggling. And uh, just yesterday, Governor Cuomo extended the non-essential workforce, 100% work reduction, meaning everyone has to work remote, um, to the end of this month, April 29th. Um, in addition to that, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase said yesterday he, ex- he expects a bad recession and a financial strain similar to 2008. So obviously, there's a lot to talk about. Um, so um, Aaron, let's start with your reaction to the J.P. Morgan CEO. Do you think there's a recession coming? Are we already there? And uh, is it going to be as bad as 2008? So um I agree with him partially. I think we're already in the recession. Um, economists tend to backdate recessions, meaning we'll find out in a couple months whether the recession started. Um, but that's kind of, that's just an academic exercise. So I so I think that the recession has already started. It, it probably started in late March or early April. And the question that a lot of economists are now asking themselves is not whether whether or not we're in a recession, but how long is it going to last? And the very nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office is forecasting a recession at least through 2021. So we're looking at you know another year and a half, uh, if not more, of very depressed economic activity. Um, I do think that this is going to be worse than the recession uh, from 2007 to 2009. I mean, back of the envelope calculations suggests that the unemployment rate is already probably uh, between 10 and 15%, which is, you know, in the span of one month, higher than the entire, uh, higher than the peak in the unemployment rate, which was 10% uh, in the last recession. Right now, we're not seeing as many strains in credit markets as we did in 2008. even though a lot of economists saw the financial crisis in 2008 coming, it was very sudden when you started to see, um, uh, you know, the wave of uh, uh, or the credit crisis uh, on Wall Street in September 2008. So the good news is that we have 2008 as a template in terms of how policymakers can respond to extreme credit market distress. So you're already seeing the Federal Reserve. Um, pump liquidity into the economy, expanding a lot of the 2008-era lending facilities, and you're seeing a much larger and much quicker uh, fiscal policy response, which is the the, the government side of it with the $2.2 trillion stimulus bill. So 
the good news is, is that policymakers are definitely, I don't want to say ahead of the curve, but are responding with the appropriate speed. My biggest concern is that they're not doing enough. So, I mean, you, you mentioned a couple of interesting things I want to just uh, say. You said, you know, they always say, well, the recession actually already started and it was it was back six months ago, six months ago. And of course, all the investor guys will tell you. And I told you then exactly that was happening, even though, um, you know, if you look at any of the surveys from the last, you know, six to eight months, none of them were saying that. They, they were saying the economy, the fundamentals remain strong and all of that. But this recession isn't caused by the same situation as 2008, right? I mean, this is something, it's not, it's not um, bad fiscal policy. It's not bad lending policy. It's not um, creating, and, and you certainly understand it better than I do, but it's not, not creating um, sort of false inflation in the value of companies, right? This is something entirely out of left field. Correct. You know, it, if you go back all the way to like the early 20th century, every recession that the U.S. economy has experienced has res resulted from some type of outside shock um, that depresses, you know, consumer or investor confidence, that reduces household and business spending, which leads to layoffs, which leads to a further reduction in spending, and you get the doom loop, as it's called, and you know the economy gradually uh, bottoms out. And then, you know, recovers uh, at varying speeds. And this recession uh, and the pandemic is entirely unique because it is so sudden. I mean, we're really looking at what happened during the last uh, two weeks of March. And you can see that in the initial claims for unemployment insurance, where there is just a shutdown of about 25% of the economy in two weeks' time. That has no precedent in U.S. economic history, and I think world economic history. There is no modern equivalent of what we're experiencing now. And that's the scary part, because that means there's no policy template. Um, the Federal Reserve and the government can't say, well, let's look what happened back in the 1969 recession and figure out how to respond to this, because it's the first time this has happened. So. Um, how do you deal, how do policymakers deal with an economy that you need to shut down to prevent, you know, a massive amount of deaths? Um, how do you keep an economy like that afloat? And I don't think there is an answer besides, you know, direct income assistance to households so they can continue paying their bills and direct income assistance to businesses, particularly small businesses, um, to prevent them or at least incentivize them to not lay off workers. Right, and so that's and that's a radically different approach than the stimulus um, at post two thousand eight, right? I mean, that was stimulus that was put into companies that were in you know insert air quotes too big to fail, um, versus this is really an attempt to keep people on payrolls. But despite that, we still saw record filing or record unemployment file uh, claims made last week, and I think probably next week as well. We will see the same. Well, I guess it'd be this week, right. it'd be Thursday. Yep, yeah, so everybody should set their, um, set an alarm for uh, Thursday mornings at 8.30 because that's when the Department of Labor releases their initial claims for unemployment insurance. Um, that's gonna be the most indicative and most frequent data release um, that's provided uh, in terms of how the labor market 
which affects the overall economy is. So, you know, in the past two weeks, it's been uh, just shy of 10 million workers who are newly unemployed. Um, and I, I think that number is likely to continue to not only creep up, but um, bolt up over the next couple months. But uh, back to your original question, Heather, um, the, you know, the policy response to, you know, recessions and uh, credit crises is figure out a way to incentivize households and households and businesses to get them spending again. This is exactly what we want to avoid. We want people to be staying inside to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. We don't want people out and about mingling at restaurants and bars and movie theaters and sporting events and concerts. We want them at home, not spending money. So there is kind of a trade-off between public health and economic health. Um, policy is not suited to do that. Policy, going back to, again, the beginning of the 20th century is, let's try to figure out a way to incentivize households and businesses to spend again. Um, if you- Well, I'm just gonna if say, you I encourage my, I, my, my big business idea is to have a subscription online toilet paper service. So, um, you know, that might be, that might be one of the ways to, to crawl out. And, and all kidding aside, don't you think that some of the spending will go online and, and so we won't, we sure. won't see a complete fail? Um, in, you know, once money is in people's pockets, we won't, it, it, I don't, I don't see it being a complete fail because people can't go out and shop because we all, not all, but most of us have computers and, you know, Amazon or, or something like that. So I, I partially agree with you. That's true for retail, but a lot of, uh, you know, about two thirds of the U S economy is services, you know, face to face interactions, whether it's going to the dentist or, um, eating out or, uh, you know, going to a concert. Um, so a lot of those, so for retail, yeah, you're going to see a shift from, you know, say, you know, going to Walmart or going to Target or going to Ace Hardware and buying stuff online. So there's just, there's going to be a reallocation of spending. Um, but in certain industries, um, you know, uh, education, leisure and hospitality, uh, and, you know, the face-to-face -face services, you're just going to see that uh, a cliff when it comes to the decrease in spending. Right. And so then we have to balance how do we, how do we come out of this, right? Because there's a desire to get back to getting back up and open, but at the same time, there's a continuing threat um, from the virus, right? So, Right. Um, so I guess that, that will be the question, right? How does, how, do, how, how does government react and how do they phase back into um, what might not be normal, but some form of new normal? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mentioned the trade-off between economic health and public health. Um, I think the short answer to your question is we're not even, we shouldn't even be considering a return to a new normal until a vaccine is developed or tested, developed, manufactured and distributed. It's not until that happens that I think you'll see people feeling more comfortable with resuming old patterns of behave, economic behavior. Um, I think the bigger risk to the economy is that, you know, there's pressure from a lot of uh, dimensions to, you know, reopen the economy. Until a vaccine is developed, reopening the economy is going just going to increase the likelihood that there's a resurgence of this virus and if that's the case, that could diminish people's confidence in 
um, the economy and economic policy and politicians even more dramatically than what we've seen with the first wave. So I think, and it's, this is a tough thing to say, and I never thought I'd be in a position to say it. Um, I think the only reasonable strategy is shut, you know, keep the economy shut down to the extent possible, meaning, you know, non-essential businesses until a vaccine is developed um, and that this is under control to prevent not only a resurgence of it, um, but uh, preventing a broader spread of it and simply provide income assistance to households and businesses that require it during these extraordinarily difficult times. So um, w would you put Wall Street in the category of, I mean, you know, it's interesting because in New York, we're very dependent on financial services and the service industry, particularly downstate. So do you think New York is more vulnerable than other states? Um, or do you think maybe we're, we're less? Or I, I'm just I'm curious to know your, your view on that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I've always viewed Wall Street as its own separate economy um, in that, you know, it serves, you know, not, I mean, in that, you know, there's a lot of job creation in the um, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, uh, tri-state area with Wall Street. Um, but Wall Street serves, you know, an international clientele. Um, keeping Wall Street afloat is not only important for New York State, but the U.S. economy and the world economy. And we solved those lessons in September and October of 2008. The good news is that the Federal Reserve did develop a template to deal with distressed credit markets in 2008, and they're falling back on that playbook precisely because it worked in 2008. Did it work perfectly? No. But when you're talking about, you know, multi-trillions of, you know, multi-trillion dollar uh, lending facilities that um, are you know, developed on the spot with very short notice that, of course, there's going to be hiccups. But for the most part, what the Fed did in 2008 is likely going to work again in terms of minimizing credit market distress on Wall Street. So the good news is, is that the Fed knows how to keep Wall Street afloat, and that will help you know, the, the New York economy. But I think the, the bigger issue is Wall Street's Im exceptionally important role in maintaining the health of the U.S. economy and the world economy as a whole. Yeah. If, I mean, let's, let's like fast forward and say that we're, we're through this. We've, we've, we've got the vaccine um, and uh, people are getting back to work. I mean, do you see, and we talked about this actually um, last week um, when we were on the radio, I, I imagine a future where there's a renewed focus on bringing key manufacturing back to the U.S., um, you know, like the medical equipment now that we're forced to try and buy from China, that some of which are made by yeah. US, U.S. companies. I mean, do you see that as, as being a factor? And I mean, do you see that as positive or I, I'm just, you know, I'm just curious as to your take on it. I think there is going to be a radical rethinking and restructuring of global supply chains because of this. Um, you know, nobody could have predicted this was going to happen. It was a theoretical possibility that a lot of people, you know, thought about. But, you know, until it happens, nobody takes it seriously. So now that it's happened and so much of, you know, U.S. manufacturing of, you know, pharmaceuticals, um, you know, the food supply chain, the manufacturing supply chain, given the disruptions in that, particularly with um, 
you know, goods that are of public health importance and, you know, national security importance, um, I think you're going to see a rethinking of that. And if, if those jobs are reshored back to U.S. firms, I, I think that would be a net positive, not only in terms of, uh, you know, the public health aspect and making sure that there's a, you know, constant supply of important goods that the U.S. is self-sufficient in producing, but I think there's a huge economic benefit um, to the U.S. economy that could result from this. So to, yeah, to so the extent there's a, that there's a silver lining, bringing a lot of those manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. and kind of, you know, regrowing that infrastructure, that manufacturing infrastructure that we had in the 1970s, 1980s, and to a certain extent in the 1990s, I think could be a, a net positive for the U.S. economy in the long term. Yeah, and I, I'll just be a little bit parochial for a second because, uh, you know, we're the, the state of New York, the state chamber of commerce, um, and uh, New York historically had great strength in both pharmaceutical manufacturing, um, not, but I don't say both, all three, pharmaceutical manufacturing, medical device manufacturing, and in paper. Um, and so many of the supplies are, are based off of paper. Um, so I, I hold out some hope that there'll be some, I don't know, uh, some advantages to New York in terms of being able to repatriate these com companies or these, these, this kind of manufacturing because we do have a long history of great higher education, um, which is why pharma has been so strong in New York. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's my hope. And it's, I, I guess I, it's a parochial hope, but um, we'll see what happens. I think Patrick actually wanted to ask a question. I don't know if he's got his mic on yet. Aaron, I, I don't know if you happen to see, there was a, um, an interesting op-ed by uh, a political strategist, Dave Catalfamo. Um, it, ha it happened today, actually, it, it popped up. His suggestion was uh, to do what the state legislature did for so many years when they had late budgets, was to put a, a pause on the economy. Uh, in, a, in essence, and basically stop the economy right before um, everything basically took place and, and caused this, this recession. Is that logistically possible to, to put the economy on pause and revert back to the day before this really started? Yeah, we're putting you on the spot, but I'll elaborate a little bit. He said, so basically stop <laughs> the clock. So, uh, you know, if, if this takes four months, so for four months, no one owes any mortgages, taxes, anything. Um, which I, you know, I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around how that would work, but, but yeah, fair question, I think. Well, w well, welcome to the club on trying to wrap your brain around that. I think everybody's trying to wrap their brain around that. Um, you know, the logistics and, you know, a lot of people have criticized the Trump administration for, you know, like being too slow on the payroll protection act and not having all this stuff thought out. You know, you're talking about a, the federal government allocating $2.2 trillion to households, to small businesses, to bigger businesses, to here and there, you know, they've had what, two or three weeks to work on this? Of course there's going to be hiccups. Of course there's going to be, you know, imperfections and understaffing of certain areas. Um, all of this is a work in progress. Part of, you know, when, when I've talked about income support to households and businesses, it's not only, you know, direct cash payments, it's also hitting the pause button on rent payments, mortgage payments, um, utility payments, you know, you name it. Um, how that's done is well beyond anything I'm qualified to talk about. Um, and I think it's something that policymakers and politicians and business leaders and labor leaders and, you know, you name it, 
are going to have to figure out on the fly. Um, I like the idea of hitting pause on, you know, debt payments, or maybe it's not pause, maybe it's a, you know, a slow motion, um, where, you know, you, you pay off, you know, 25% of every bill you owe. Um, but how you come back from that, how you institute that and how you come back from that is anybody's guess. Um, these are absolute, and I can't stress this enough. These are, there is no parallel in world economic history um, that provides a template for what we should be doing and whether it will work. This is really learning on the fly. And fortunately, there are some really bright minds out there that are, you know, responding to this and thinking about, well, what do we do in the short term? And, you know, more importantly, like Heather was alluding to before, what do we do in the long term? You know, like once we get through this in, you know, two, three, five years or what, however long it takes, you know, what happens in 2040? Um, you know, thinking about industrial policy and rebuilding important manufacturing, you know, factories and supply chains and the human capital that goes into developing that. Um, that's another important question. And right now we're just, I, I really think we're at the tip of the iceberg. So everybody's thinking short term, how do we stop the bleeding? And that's the, what Patrick said about, you know, hitting pause or stopping the clock. Um, right. I think, that's largely I think a wild it, card. I, I, I've been thinking of it as hibernation. Right. We just all go into yeah. our houses, <laughs> put on our comfy clothes right. and watch Netflix yeah. for a couple of months. You know? and, and part of the problem is that somebody owes somebody. So whether, you know, yeah. the renter owes the landlord who owes the bank, who owes, you right. know, and the problem is everybody yep. owes somebody. So you got to get everybody on board. Right. The good news is that the Federal Reserve, uh, the Central Bank of the United States, has adopted the lender of last resort. So the Federal Reserve has a very unique legal position in that they are politically independent in that um, certain key members of the Federal Reserve are appointed politically, but um, they're not, their decisions uh, are not subject to uh, congressional approval or presidential approval. Um, they have an unlimited balance sheet, meaning they can uh, print as much money as they want. Um, and they can essentially serve as the lender of last resort, meaning the Fed can backstop all of those loans that are either uh, going into hibernation, for lack of a better term. And again, there's really no parallel in terms of how much of this can the Fed absorb. Um, right. We saw them absorb about $4 trillion worth of it during the 2008 crisis. Um, but where this is going over the next six months or a year um, is really anybody's guess. And to keep the U.S. economy afloat, the Fed can backstop the financial um, financial markets and debt markets. Um, but you're also going to need to see, uh, you know, the federal government provide you know direct income assistance uh, to households and businesses. And the good news about the for the federal government is that borrowing costs are at you know, historical lows. I think the yield on a 10-year treasury is 0.6%, meaning for, you know, over 10 years, the government can borrow money at a 0.6% interest rate. So this is a perfect time for the government to think about long-term, you know, obviously borrowing to help stop the bleeding in the short term, but also long-term investment strategies. So does it, does it help? I mean, I don't know, help. Does it soften the impact of 
you know, printing new money that the, the global economy is basically in the same boat. Um, I, I guess my, my, my limited understanding of sort of macroeconomics is that one of the risks of, you know, printing a whole bunch of new cash to infuse into your economy is that it devalues the currency, it creates an inflationary climate, but some of these things maybe won't come to pass because it's, it's global. Is that, am I, am I connecting too many dots there? Um, so sort of, um, you <laughs> yeah. know, that, that, that was, that, that was kind of the, uh, that's kind of what happened in 2008, except it was primarily the, you know, the world's largest economies. Um, you saw that with the federal reserve in the U S the European central bank in the EU, um, uh, the central bank of Japan, you saw major central banks essentially flood their economies with money. And we didn't see the inflation problem that a lot of people suspected was going to occur. So part of that is that, you know, you have such a giant hole in the economy that even when you fill that hole with, you know, money that central banks have printed, um, it wasn't enough to bring the economy out of that hole and create inflation. I think you're going to see something very similar to that um, over the next couple of years is that, you know, world central banks can print almost unlimited amounts of money uh, but given the depth and severity of the uh, economic shock, it probably won't generate inflation. And to the extent it does, the Fed can always suck money out of the economy just as fast as it pumped it in. Um, the Federal Reserve has the ability to raise interest rates, to essentially sell bonds back to banks and suck money out of the economy that way. So the Federal Reserve does have, and world central banks have a lot of exit strategy tools that they can employ if they see inflation start creeping up. But I think right now, much as it was in 2008, unemployment, uh, mass unemployment is by far the larger threat to economic and social stability as opposed to inflation. And does that, I mean, does that relate directly to um, the underlying productivity of the economy and, and the creation of value? Um, again, testing the limits of my macroeconomic understanding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's another way of kind of alluding to or rephrasing what I said when you're talking about the world's advanced economies. Those are economies with a productive infrastructure. So you're printing money on top of a foundation of potential production. If you were doing this in, say, sub-Saharan Africa, it would be a very different story because there is not that productive infrastructure that can support that massive volume of money. So that gives advanced economies their productive capacity um, allows them to essentially weather the possibility of inflation, you know, it, some of the downsides of inflation, but also uh, being able to um, tamp down that inflation if it becomes a problem. But like I said, the, the lesson of 2008 is unemployment is a much bigger threat to the overall health of the economy than inflation is. All right. Well, I mean, in a nutshell, then we don't know what's going to happen. You're not going to give us a date now for, for when this is all going to be over with. Yeah, no, right. Uh, but I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time. I wish there was a way that I could earn some kind of college credit for this class. Can you talk to yeah. Sienna and see if they could hook us up? Um, I, I, I will, perhaps. Yeah, I'll, uh, maybe after a couple more interviews, I can get you an honorary degree or something. All right, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much, Aaron. Really, really appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon.